Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. In July of 2020, the IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain, came up with its new definition of pain. Quote, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage, end quote. Anyone working in acute or chronic pain medicine understands the complexity of invoking emotional response into a definition. In practical terms, it means that among many other variables, mental health conditions play a critical role in determining the emotional response. Thus, it is very reasonable to hypothesize that baseline anxiety, for instance, may influence pain and opioid prescribing. What is very exciting to Rapham is the untapped potential to intervene on anxiety as a therapy for pain and opioid mitigation. Studies like the one we are about to discuss are the first step. This is why we are so excited to support Shay Wen and her colleagues at University of Michigan. Today, we're joined by Shay Wen and Jennifer Walji. Shay is a fourth-year medical student at University of Michigan who is applying into plastic surgery. She studied biochemistry at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she did research in chemistry and material science. Currently, her research interest includes understanding risk factors for opioid use in the context of surgery and perioperative anxiety management. Dr. Walji is a plastic surgeon in academic practice at the University of Michigan. She completed her medical school training at Emory University and completed clinical residencies in general surgery and plastic surgery at the University of Michigan, followed by a hand surgery fellowship. Dr. Walji is a co-founder and co-director of the Michigan Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network, OPEN, a statewide collaborative program dedicated to enhancing opioid stewardship and developing best practices for the management of acute pain during procedural care. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Shay was the lead author in a fascinating study examining the association between perioperative anxiety, pain, and opioid use following common surgical procedures. In this study, 1,771 patients were prospectively followed. Self-reported opioid use, pain, and anxiety were recorded on the day of surgery and at one, three, and six months post-surgery. The research question was whether or not anxiety was a mediator between pain and opioid use, getting back to the original definition of pain. So to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about the background idea to assess the relationship between pain, anxiety, and opioid prescribing? Was this study influenced by clinical experience? Because often uh, we hear these kind of cool anecdotes uh, about either personal experiences or uh, clinical experiences that, that researchers have had that inspired them. And it might be nice just to get your your thoughts on that? I can start off with the background information, uh, and I'll leave Dr. Walji to talk about her clinical experience. Um, So opioids are commonly prescribed after surgery to manage acute pain, 
However, there has been substantial research demonstrating the potential harms of opioid use, such as dependence and overdose. With the increase in exposure to opioids, surgical patients are at increased risks for developing prolonged opioid use and misuse. Um, the perception for pain is a result of a network of sensory, motor, and cognitive um, and emotional affective inputs. And as you mentioned earlier, mental health conditions um, such as anxiety can play a critical role in determining the emotional response of pain. Studies have shown that preoperative anxiety is very common, uh, occurring in more than 90% of patients undergoing surgery. And the autonomic nervous system activated by anxiety, such as the amygdala, can be closely associated with the psychological responses of pain. And patients with high anxiety um, may be more physically attentive and can experience heightened um, surgical pain. So poorly managed pain um, may also increase the level of anxiety and may lead to a cycle of worsening anxiety and surgical pain, leading to increase in the use of opioids. So I think if we have a better understanding of the relationship between anxiety and pain and how they drive opioid consumptions, we can improve patient care and reduce harms as there is the untapped potential to intervene on anxiety as a therapy for pain and opioid mitigation. Well, that's a great, it's a great uh, kind of background, Shay, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious also to get your thoughts on, uh, as, as, a, uh, as, as a medical student, you're, you're going to these uh, lectures and you're taking these core courses like psychiatry and you're learning about the brain and, and all these uh, me- mental health conditions. When did it occur to you uh, and, and through what kind of interaction with, let's say, mentors, where some of the basic things you're learning about, let's say, like depression, anxiety, might have an impact on the perioperative period, because that's when it starts becoming fun in medicine. You start connecting the dots between some of the classroom things that you're learning and then the multidisciplinary nature of, of medicine, uh, where, you know, it's like, wow, this is like, this all makes sense. It's kind of it's all coming together. Maybe it doesn't all make sense, but you start seeing how the pieces may fit together. Kind of curious, when did that when did you kind of like get a sense, well, this would be kind of a cool line of line of research? Yeah, I think I really enjoy working with uh, the transgender population. And I see that for a lot of these patients who are very well um, researched and they come in very excited and they might have a lower level of anxiety, they tend to do very well postoperatively. And a lot of those patients don't even need any kind of opioids to manage their pain. So I think that's one example that I can think of where anxiety anxiety affects um, opioid consumption. And then, the, and then, the, and then the counter to that is if a patient's presenting with for let's say reassignment surgery and they're struggling with severe anxiety and or depression, their postoperative course might be different. You might have seen that, correct? Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. And Dr. Walji, what do you what do you think? I think it's uh, just a really fascinating question. I mean, I think if we think about all the different healthcare experiences, so many of them for us are anxiety provoking, either because there's uncertainty of the diagnosis, uncertainty of what a workup might entail, um, uncertainty of the cost and like the commitment to the pathway you may be going down for treatment. And I think surgery in particular is anxiety provoking um, because of time off of work because of caregiver responsibilities. And then of course, because of associated pain. And um, by far, that is one of the most common questions that we all get when people are thinking about, you know, undertaking a procedure, at least in the elective setting, you know, what is this going to feel like? What can I expect? And when can I get back to my usual activities? Um, 
there's been, you know, a number of different studies that have shown that um, situational anxiety is quite common during the perioperative period. Um, but I would say that there's not a lot of systematic ways that we approach managing anxiety for patients. I think we sort of indirectly try to do this with education um, and making the patient feel comfortable throughout the whole experience. But um, it's possible that that may not be enough, that for some patients they need more. And, um, you know, identifying you know, really who these patients are that might need more um, is an important opportunity for us to direct therapies and treatments towards that. Well, that, that's great. And I, I think as a, an acute pain doc that I, you know, I run our acute pain service at, at Dartmouth, you know, I, I am convinced that the undertreatment of uh, anxiety, depression, is um is is really almost like a an epidemic in 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 uh in, in perioperative medicine because we don't really currently have the tools and the resources to deploy uh cognitive behavioral therapies and other other interventions uh beyond some of the medical uh, treatments uh and it's it would, it's also going to require kind of a paradigm shift to think about where we want to put, put some of our resources that's why any of the listeners that are following all of our podcasts uh may uh, realize that we have a theme. We're doing a lot of these because we're super interested in this. Uh, so that's great. Well, thanks so much for that background. Uh, and I was kind of curious to get a sense also um, of what you might say to the skeptic that says, yeah, yeah, this is kind of like, you know, old news. We all know that, you know, mental illness and anxiety is associated with like bad stuff. Like, like why, why keep rehashing this? How would you, how would you re- respond to someone that says that? Cause they, some, that, that, that always used to happen with my research. So I was just kind of curious how you how you might might respond to the skeptic. Yes. So although it is well known that mental health and anxiety are ex- associated with acute and chronic pain, um, but we wanted to look at how um, this affects post-surgical opioid use and look at this from a surgical point of view. Um, so there are prior studies that have demonstrated uh, mental health as a risk factor for increased opioid use. So depression, anxiety, or history of substance abuse are all risk factors um, that are correlated to poor pain control. Um, However, most studies have only looked at um, the association between anxiety, pain, opioid use um, at at one um, time point or um, limited to a few types of surgery. So we wanted to look at um, how these relationships play out um, up to six months postoperatively and look at a wider uh, range of surgeries. Also, not much is known regarding the trajectory of um, anxiety and surgical pain, opioid use. And so that's what we wanted to look at as well. And that, that, and that actually got us very interested early on in the review process, the fact that this was going out uh, longitudinally. And so before we kind of get into the results uh, of your study, can you tell us just a little bit about the structure of your data, how it was collected? You know, everybody respects greatly the University of Michigan system for its data capabilities and what you've done. So it might be helpful just to maybe give a little insight into how this data was collected and you, how you were able to go out six months post, post-surgery. post Yes. So um, we have a few number of different surveys that we give to patients um, on the day of surgery in the pre-op area, as well as um, during their post-operative follow-up visits, so at one month, three months, and six months. Um, And these are just some of the the data points that we wanted to look at for this particular study, but there are also other um, data for 
for these group of patients as well. Uh, for example, um, substance use um, as well as alcohol use and um, depression um, scales. Yeah, and this has um, been a part of a larger effort uh, led by uh, Dr. Chad Brummett and others at our institution, um, part of the analgesic outcome study, which is a prospective study um, whereby patients who are undergoing elective surgery complete a variety of measures um, at baseline and then throughout specific points um, during their recovery. Um, so, you know, we've been, you know, really fortunate uh, to be a part of the um their team and be able to kind of examine the data in this way to understand these relationships. Is the is the data assessment um, that's occurring as a part of the normal process for all patients at University of Michigan, or is this unique to a research uh, arm that is running kind of in parallel? Many patients are approached who are undergoing um, elective surgery, and then there's a um, a few different uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria, and then patients are approached for um, consenting to be part of the registry. Gotcha. So it's okay. it's not all patients, and it's not um, these measures are not you know completed as a part of you know standardized clinical care. Like every time that you come in for a clinic visit, this is more of a research okay. registry. And I think that's also a distinction uh, between other research that is just pulling from the EMR. Uh, cross-sectionally, to your point, Shay, that this offers a different look at it in a more comprehensive way. So we are, again, very excited at RAPM to actually to get this uh, in, in, our, in our journal. So can you, can you guys summarize your findings uh, in terms of the overall relationship between pain, anxiety, and opiate prescribing? And please feel free to comment on both primary and secondary uh, outcomes, uh, just in a way that would be useful for the listeners. Yeah, so our primary outcome um, was looking at how anxiety affects opioid use. Um, So in our study, opioid use um, and surgical site pain were higher in the presence of anxiety at each time point. And those with clinically significant anxiety reported higher level of surgical pain. Um, So 1.14 points higher um, on a scale of 0 to 10. Uh, and in terms of opioid use, um, there was a 40% increase um, risk in opioid use um, after adjusting for covariates such as sex, age, race, education, marital status, and the type of surgery. Um, furthermore, we saw that um, patients with higher level of pain also reported higher opioid use. Um, and so these findings have been pretty consistent with the previous studies um, that showed the correlations between mental health, pain, and opioid use. Um, we also did a um, mediating um, effect analysis um, to see if anxiety um, was a mediator for the relationship between pain and opioid use. And we saw a very small um, and insignificant mediating effect um, which indicates that anxiety acts more as an independent risk factor for for post-operative opioid use and not through a casual pathway of pain. And we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. Uh, so listeners, uh, uh, stay glued to your seats because we're gonna dissect that one a little bit more because that's kind of an important point. And you know, I was I was also super excited about Figure Two A because and if if the listeners want to kind of flip over to that if you're listening to this podcast podcast if you're not in a car um, uh, because it, it really demonstrates that um, that the impact of anxiety is really sustained over time and you really appreciate that from 
from the figure. And we love those type of figures at Rappin that really summarize like a big point and demonstrate a bit, bit a pretty big signal. And that was super cool. So I was, I was curious to, curious to get your uh, thoughts on, um, uh, on that figure and what it's saying. So we saw patients with clinically significant anxiety continues to have higher rates of opioid use, even um, at six months um, post-op follow-up visit. And um, I think this shows that anxiety can have a persistent effect on opioid use, and it's not just during the pre-operative or um, right after surgery. Um, And patients can have anxiety for many reasons, um, and there can be different forms of anxiety, um, such as state versus straight anxiety. In the study, we didn't differentiate between these two, but state anxiety um, describes situational specific anxiety, which can be associated with the procedure, um, the high level of pain, uh, being unfamiliar to the settings, um, or worrying about complications, while trait anxiety is something or refers to the tendency for anxiety related to personality. Um, So patients can still have anxiety um, even six months after surgery. And these could be, you know, um, more related to anxiety, but could also be um, related to state anxiety as well. What strikes me when I look at these figures is that, you know, when we're caring for patients during the perioperative period is clinicians were fairly episodic, meaning that, you know, we're evaluating somebody for a surgical procedure, um, depending on the procedure that they might undergo. And there was a variety in this particular cohort. Um, You know, most of the time when things go well, our clinical care and postoperative care has concluded within, you know, a month or so. Um, But this but the trajectories that we see here suggest that, you know, we don't, we can't exactly nail down what what type of anxiety this is, but this persists and it probably manifests in different symptoms uh, that patients may present with, such as disordered sleep. And we hear that commonly that patients, you know, may, you know, require additional pain medication to help with sleep that sometimes is, you know, characterized as pain. Sometimes it's characterized as just being, um, it's just, difficulty with sleep in the postoperative period. So recognizing that for our patients with anxiety, I think is important, um, A, to manage their pain, and then also perhaps to find other more effective treatments for whatever symptoms that they may be experiencing that opioids don't necessarily address and may not be appropriate for, particularly in the late postoperative period. But I think, you know, too, from a pragmatic standpoint, looking at your results, uh, and as a surgeon, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Jennifer, too. So if you're, you know, in a, let's say a busy practice, uh, private practice, you don't have a lot of residents and call team members and, and, and you're, you're seeing only a patient in your office and you're contemplating surgery and somebody comes with, let's say, a, you know, a really potentially like uh, undertreated or not even treated at all anxiety and you, you are considering surgery for that patient there's going to be a lot of potential resources that are needed postoperatively that wouldn't otherwise necessarily be needed to deal with some of these issues. Does, does that ever like influence the decision to have surgery or what you may want to do with that patient uh, kind of in the real world? I think it's a really important point and probably depends to some degree on the type of condition that you're considering, you know, be that elective and, you know, perhaps more discretionary than, you know, perhaps a cancer diagnosis or something along those lines. And so I think it really depends on what the patient's presenting with. Um, As you bring up, we don't have a really structured way to assess for anxiety and link 
resources for patients who may screen in a certain way, which I think would be really important thinking about going for, going forward. I think where it probably plays out most often in our clinical care is trying to set patient expectations um, for what they can expect for the outcomes of surgery distinct from the recovery from surgery. So um, this surgery may or may not help with some elements or all elements of your pain related to arthritis, um, or this surgery may or may not, you know, require several weeks before you're getting back to work or being able to lift a child or being able to care for loved ones, those types of things. Um, And so being able to create space in the perioperative period to have those discussions with patients and make sure they feel comfortable um, when they're going into the uh, surgery, you know, I think is an important opportunity um, to improve care and then hopefully improve outcomes. And this is totally random uh, because uh, you're you're a, a hand surgeon, so I thought of this and I wanted to get your thoughts thoughts on this because it's my experience uh, doing anesthesia for uh, a high volume carpal tunnel uh, practice when I'm in the ambulatory surgery center. That it seems to me that um, there's quite a degree of you know, mental illness that seems to track with carpal tunnel surgery. Is that just my, like, is that just like not something that's recognized in the surgical literature for that patient population? Because it seems to be something I noticed. And we actually did a quality improvement project where we were looking at um, need for emergency room visits uh, after a discharge from the ambulatory surgery center in carpal tunnel surgery uh, ranked like the highest uh, cohort that actually got reseen in the ED, uh, and it wasn't related even to the to the surgery. It was like some other thing that actually tracked with like they had gotten to another problem. Um, and I'm just kind of curious to get your your thoughts on that. It's totally like random, but since I got you here, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. Oh sure, it's a fascinating question. I don't know about you know, how much carpal tunnel surgery or carpal tunnel syndrome is an outlier compared with other. Uh, conditions that we treat. But I am reflecting on an article that was published by one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Paul Hilliard, um, I think it was in 2018. And he had looked using uh, very similar data collected in a registry at the University of Michigan um, among patients who were presenting with chronic pain as distinct from patients who are presenting with chronic opioid use. Um, and patients who present with chronic opioid use, and you know, perhaps you know, to some degree, opioids are being used to manage pain, or maybe they're being used to manage other symptoms. Um, you know, they, they tend to cluster with different procedures, largely extremity um, surgeries. So certainly carpal tunnel surgery may um, fall into that. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot to learn in that space. It's interesting. It's an interesting question. So I don't want to digress too much, but thanks for that insight. Now, you guys almost kind of answered this question, I think, a little bit. But um, since 30% of the patients scored clinically significant anxiety at the time of enrollment, I was wondering if you could clarify for the listeners uh, whether or not your assessment tool distinguished between anxiety as like a D- DSM-5 condition versus the situational anxiety that you al- alluded to about surgery. Um, and, you know, cause that kind of is like a, a distinction that might be helpful. Yeah. So we, uh, assess anxiety using the patient reported outcomes measurement information system or the promise form, which is a validated assessment developed by the NIH. And, um, it's a four question survey that, uh, asks patients about their level of anxiety, um, within the past seven days, um, which were standardized to a score ranging from zero to 100, um, and with 50 being the national mean um, and 10 being the standard deviation. So in the study, we classify um, the score 55 or higher as 
um, being clinically significant um, anxiety. I think this is uh, different than um, the DSM-5 um, definition of generalized anxiety disorder, which um, is based on a list of specific criteria, such as having excessive anxiety occurring more days than not for at least six months um, that causes significant stress or impairment to the patient. And so I think that we're looking at um, a, something completely different, not like anxiety disorder, um, but just anxiety related to um, surgery. But I think that's a potential big story, right? Because I think if if you're a surgeon seeing someone in a preoperative clinic, um, in, let's say you're planning on a, it doesn't even have to be a large surgery, but let's say a significant surgery, uh, and they have a true anxiety um, disorder defined by DSM-5 um, and they're not treated, that that could that trajectory could be completely different than someone who scores high on a on a survey kind of scale thing. But it's just kind of interesting. I don't know what I don't that, that might be great to actually compare that at some some point. I wanted to touch on this this issue of 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 some prior research that that has occurred. Um, there's been multiple studies that that looked at looked at opioid prescribing as a function of of mental illness, uh, such as anxiety and depression, and that and that that basically that. Anxiety and depression tend to be independent predictors uh, of, of of opioid prescribing, and you mentioned pain already, but just specifically opioid prescribing. Um, and this calls into really the, the complexity of the relationship between the patient, the doctor, and the environment, because if if mental illness is an independent predictor, independent of pain for opioid prescribing, and opioid prescribing is for pain, it's it gets very complicated here. So uh, do you think that um, healthcare providers may change their prescribing and how they deliver care uh, for a patient uh, who they identify as having some sort of anxiety disorder, whether that's one that's defined by DSM-4 or whether it's a high-scoring trait? Uh, and and just, just some anecdotal experience for you, and I think that uh, you might agree with this, Jennifer, from your clinical experience, it's it's off when a patient presents for surgery and they're clearly in a, in a having anxiety. I sense that we overtreat patients because we we're we're already giving them more midazolam, more opioids because we're thinking that that's the right thing to do for someone who's not coping with the situation. And my sense is that a lot of this is driven by our response to try to do the right thing, and we may overdo it. Uh, and I don't even know if it's appropriate. Um, and you hear people say, "Well, we really gotta we really gotta cover it. We you know we gotta load this patient up." They're not, they, we haven't even started this in and they're already not doing well. <laughs> um, and so just kind of curious to get your thoughts on the relationship between the doctor, the patient and the environment, uh, c- because it, it's, it's very, very complex. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, trying to tease out, it, I think it depends on the point that they're at in their kind of perioperative journey. Uh, is it right before surgery or um, are they now manifesting symptoms later in the postoperative period that could be related to underlying anxiety, but we're still treating them with opioids, which may not be appropriate. So I think teasing out that is a really important thing that we can do as clinicians. And I think one of the um, other inspirations for this study was seeing the effectiveness of behavioral non-pharmacologic treatment strategies in the setting of chronic pain and recognizing that, you know, there could be many opportunities that we could leverage those types of interventions in the setting of acute pain um, or anticipating acute pain management prior to surgery, you know, specifically in the 
setting of elective surgery, um, you know, can we give patients the tools um, to manage their anxiety before surgery that would be able to help us manage them better um, pharmacologically and otherwise when they're actually undergoing the procedure? And we've covered that topic here extensively on the podcast of, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Rapham supported the the music versus bedazzlin paper, which is like our number one alt metric right now, I think. So we're really into that topic. And I think that that is a huge opportunity for research and for real clinical uh, applications. So I'm so glad that you uh, highlighted that. Really appreciate that. Okay. So now on to the tough question. And this, this will, this will be, this will bring us close to close to the end, but I want I want to get into this issue um, that that you found that anxiety had no significant mediation effect on the relationship of pain and opioid use, but you rather determine that it's an independent risk factor, which is another way of saying that it is not uh, a, you know not a mediator, not kind of causing that relationship, if you will. Um, can you? help the listeners understand in a simple way the distinction between this mediation um, and um, versus the traditional, you know, thinking of something as a confounder? Yeah. So um, a mediator variable explains the casual pathway through which an independent variable, in this case, pain, and a dependent variable or opioid use um, and how they're related. Um, So for example, Um, Sun exposure is a mediator for age and skin cancer. So older individuals tend to have more sun exposure, uh, which leads to an increased increased risk for skin cancer compared to younger individuals. Uh, On the other hand, a confounder is a third variable that affects both the independent and the dependent variables and can obscure or accentuate the relationship between them. Um, unlike the mediation effect, confounding does not imply a casual relationship among the variables. So, for example, sun exposure may be a confounder for the relationship between ice cream consumption and skin cancer. So, sun exposure can be positive related to um, both ice cream consumption and skin cancer, but it doesn't mean that ice cream consumption causes um sun exposure, which then caused skin cancer. So um, in looking at at those two examples, you can see how one lies in the casual pathway of the dependent and the independent variables, and one is um, more of an independent um, variable. That's a great summary. I think you mean causal, right? Yes, causal. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's actually a really, really, I think that's really important for our readers to understand is that uh, that if you have something that's in the biological pathway to cause the outcome, okay, if you adjust for that and control for that, you're going to uh, then wipe out the relationship. You won't see it. Um, and so you don't want to do that. Uh, you want to you want to explore it. Uh, you want to explore with that uh, variable still present. So um, so tell us. So so like the big picture then if if. If this isn't, if anxiety is not in the causal pathway of the relationship between pain and opioid prescribing, um, how do you wrap your hands around what it is? I think that's a really fascinating um, 
question, like thinking about this relationship, when we started this analysis, I had hypothesized that anxiety was going to mediate the relationship between pain and opioid use. What we saw is that that wasn't the case. Um, it probably acts as more of a moderator. So really impacting kind of the strength of the relationship. Um, but not necessarily explaining the process by which these you know, pain and opioid use exist. Um, and I think we see that play out in those figures where patients with anxiety had, you know, higher rates of pain and opioid use extending into the postoperative period. Um, I think from an academic perspective, um, it is important to kind of think about that because it's important to then think about how we're going to design studies and test hypotheses in the future when we are creating conceptual models for these types of questions. In clinical practice, though, I think either way, it still highlights the importance of addressing anxiety and managing this and understanding its interplay and its potential effect on pain and opioid use throughout the postoperative period. Perhaps it has an independent effect on both pain and opioid use, which we've talked about a little bit. Um, but for clinicians in practice, I think it just highlights the importance of screening for this, um, understanding um, what types of anxiety a patient might have, the types of treatment they're undergoing. Is it subclinical? Um, and as Shay highlighted earlier, the instruments that we use for promise measures, so they um, you know, are not perfect at distinguishing all of those things, but they're also commonly used um, and increasingly so in clinical practice. So um, understanding that someone who may score on a higher level um, may be at higher risk for poor pain and opioid-related outcomes in the postoperative period um, is important. So I think from uh, you know, kind of the 40,000-foot view, um, I would say, you know, do we treat it differently if it's a mediator or a moderator? Hard to know. Um, and that, you know, perhaps future research will better untangle that relationship. Fantastic. I think that's, those are great points. And, uh, in the, in the, rea the reality is if you have preoperative anxiety it's going to ha likely be associated with independently clinical challenges. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the take, take home message. Now you alluded to before, um, Jennifer, that, um, it would be great if we could deploy some of these, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral other type interventions to address, you know, anxiety, whether it's a mediator or moderator or, or whatever you want to label it as. Uh, and I think a lot of our readers may, and listeners may think that the human resources cost and expertise needed to, to deliver such therapies, uh, in a timely and effective manner would be prohibitive. Um, uh, to wide adoption. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts because I've asked multiple other guests um, uh, this same question, uh, and I know the resources at, at many institutions are limited. So, kind of curious to get your your thoughts. Yeah, I think that's a really important point um, because so many of the traditional treatments for this are uh, based on having um, you know an individual clinician and a patient receiving care, and how scalable that is um, is challenging, especially in certain you know, resource poor or research rich environments um, and the timing, right? So, you know, some patients may present for surgery and then end up requiring surgery within a few days or within a few weeks. And so um, understanding the treatments that could provide positive effects on anxiety um, in a short period of time is really important. I think there's a lot to learn in this space, but I do think that um, given the innovations in, you know, 
behavioral therapies that are adapted to app-based platforms or mobile health-based platforms, and now with telehealth too, um, I think in the coming years, we'll see lots more um, applications that we can potentially deploy in real time in the perioperative space uh, with greater ease than we could have perhaps in years past. So in terms of um, next steps, it's clear that more work is needed to understand the specifics of anxiety and different subtypes with how they may impact on the emotional experience after surgery. So what do you think are the next steps? Yeah, so we have alluded to some of our um, current work um, earlier, but um, I am currently working on a project looking at if patients' anxiety uh, would affect physician patterns of opioids prescription and co-prescription with benzodiazepines. Um, so benzodiazepines are often used preoperatively to treat anxiety, um, but co-prescribing of opioid and benzodiazepine um, can be potentially dangerous due to the synergistic risk of respiratory depression leading to higher rate of overdose. And so, so I think um, that would be um, interesting to look at. Furthermore, um, our group is also working on um, a randomized control trial um, testing out an app-based behavioral therapy um, that patients who are undergoing surgery um, can use and see if that would kind of help manage their anxiety related to surgery uh, by through education and um, kind of behavioral um, therapy, um, such as breathing exercises or kind of imagery um, that helps patient being less anxious about um, the day of surgery and and the post-op period. This has been just a phenomenal uh, summary of, of your amazing work and, and, and future directions. And I want to I want to thank uh, Shane Jennifer for joining us, and, and, and thanks to to all of you uh, who, who listened in. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal, and you can visit us at www.rapham.org.